Albert Einstein remains to me one of, if not the most, amazing human beings of all time. There are a few reasons for this. First of all, the dude was a quote machine, reportedly gifting us such gems as the definition of insanity is trying to do the same thing over and expecting different results, as well as only two things are infinite, the universe and human stupidity and I'm not sure of the former. His quotes were so good that a number of our favorite Einstein quotes aren't actually attributable to him, such as the one that everyone is a genius, but if you judge a fish by its ability to climb a tree, it will live its whole life believing it is stupid. That leads to the second reason that I like Einstein so much. Despite his status as a bona fide genius, he was unable to pass his college entrance exams for history, language, and geography. His life showcases the different learning styles that every teacher knows exists within their classroom. After all, Einstein believed in standardizing automobiles, just not in standardizing human beings. There are a number of other things I like about Einstein, such as his help in defeating the Nazis, as well as his eccentric hair and mustache. But the ultimate reason that I'm starting out this podcast on Einstein is the fact that many of his discoveries were positively unprovable during his lifetime. In 1905, Albert Einstein wrote a two-page paper outlining how special relativity can explain radioactive decay. The theory posited within the paper eventually led to the infamous E equals mc squared. It also forever changed the study of modern physics. 106 years later, scientists were finally able to prove his theory through the creation and utilization of an advanced particle accelerator. Einstein, along with Leonardo da Vinci, another one of my personal favorites, explored the unknown, but they knew what they were doing. Einstein's theories belong with the tank, submarine, and helicopter of da Vinci, discoveries that were too advanced for their time period, yet something that their inventor instinctively knew to be true. Ferdinand Magellan is just as famous, yet his accomplishments fall into another category, one that is famous for being completely wrong. Not about the fact that the world was round, Every idiot was fully aware of our planet's spherical shape by the time that Magellan's Spanish expedition set out. Magellan was wrong about where he was sailing to, for he believed that the Spice Islands of Indonesia were in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. He never expected to travel around the world, for the map that he envisioned only called for a quick jaunt across the ocean before returning to Europe as a rich man. On September 20th, 1519, he set sail with five ships, destined to become the captain associated with the first voyage circumnavigating the globe. His incorrect assumptions made him famous. It also led to his death. You're listening to Empires, Anarchy, and Other Notable Moments a podcast designed for deep dives that assist in the teaching of history. This series focuses upon the adventures of the explorer Ferdinand Magellan. 
episode number two, The Genius of Being Wrong. Ferdinand Magellan had incredibly just received permission from the Portuguese king to serve another master of his choosing. After years of service risking his life, he had never been given the due that he believed he was deserved. But as it has often been said, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Within a month, he had moved to Spain, the nautical archenemy of his homeland. Within days, he became a citizen, altering his name to Hernando de Melanchias. But we'll stick with the old name for ease. Magellan's ideas might have been ultimately wrong, but he was still a valuable asset for the Spanish beneath King Charles I, the 19-year-old grandson of Isabella and Ferdinand. His value came in what he knew about Portugal's seafaring missions. Historian Lawrence Bergerin informs us that Portugal had long been notoriously secretive about its empire, almost as secretive as the Arabs had been. By an edict of the Portuguese king announced on November 13, 1504, anyone revealing discoveries or plans for missions of exploration could face execution. From 1500 to about 1550, not one book concerning Portuguese discoveries was published, and Portuguese charts and maps were regarded as classified information and treated as state secrets. Magellan, who had always been fascinated by academic studies regarding the nation's vast sea history, brought all of this insider knowledge with him. And in seeking out a new sponsor, someone who would give him the kudos that he had longed for, the information in his head was his ticket to acceptance in his chosen home. And it was the right ticket for a young and ambitious king. Charles had arrived in Spain just one year before Magellan. A Habsburg, he had grown up in Flanders and was desperately trying to prove his Spanish credentials by learning the language. When that proved too difficult, he fought bulls in staged fights across the country to earn the adulation of his people. Soon he was crowned King Charles V, the latest in the long line of Holy Roman Emperors. You might wonder how a teenager who didn't speak the language of his people was able to obtain such a prestigious title. For that, I will remind you that the answer to 99 out of 100 questions is money. He bought the emperorship by bribing the German-based electors. The new world would end up paying for his throne, but that meant that he had to find a way to first increase its profitability. Columbus had discovered the New World for Spain, but it hadn't yet begun to produce consistent revenue for its mother country. Gold was being exported in large numbers, but the worldwide price had spiraled due to the large influx originating in the Spanish New World, as well as the Portuguese increased efforts at extraction from the Gold Coast of Africa. Soon, sugar plantations would take off, but that market would initially be dominated by France. Likewise, King Cotton and Tobacco also eluded the Spanish as cash crops as each came beneath the auspicious of England. 
Magellan's theory that the Spice Islands were significantly closer to Europe meant that Spain could undercut the Portuguese monopoly. It would be even better if the expedition proved that the islands were actually within the Spanish side of the Treaty of Tordesillas, something that Magellan had incorrectly alleged. But Ferdinand was Portuguese, and the Spanish crown had no reason to trust him. After all, he had been dishonorably dismissed from his homeland. Surely, if he had value, he would have never been allowed to leave. One could have applied the same logic to the European Albert Einstein. His value to the World War II allies was immediately clear, as the Nazis had made him target number one. The college professor was targeted for reasons beyond his Jewish ethnicity, as Time magazine reveals that shortly after Adolf Hitler came to power, Einstein had publicly criticized the repressive policies of the new National Socialist government, resigned from the Prussian Academy of Sciences in Berlin, applied for release from his Prussian-German citizenship, and found a temporary home for himself and his wife on the coast of nearby Belgium. In response, he had been relentlessly attacked in the German press, and his scientific works had been publicly burned in Berlin. The government had confiscated his and his wife's bank accounts. Their summer villa near Berlin had reportedly been searched for arms, on the ground that Einstein was treasonously spreading communist-influenced atrocity propaganda against Germany from abroad. One especially prominent anti-Semitic German publication about Jews, approved by the government's propaganda chief Joseph Goebbels, showed a photograph of Einstein with the sinister caption in capital letters, not yet hanged. Like Einstein, Magellan had an axe to grind, but he wasn't able to convince anyone of importance in Spain, in part because of his inability to speak the native language. While it is indeed easy to allege that 99 out of 100 answers is money, it leaves one remaining answer to the world's questions. In my own personal study of history, that one remaining answer typically involves a girl. That particular generalization does explain Magellan's eventual breakthrough, as he managed to woo the influential daughter of a Portuguese expat. Within a year, he was married to Beatrice. Bergreen points out that Magellan now had an important sponsor in Seville, with his father-in-law serving as Knight Commander of the Order of Santiago, among other distinctions. The $600,000 dowry also meant that he now had access to money, something that always manages to open doors. The happy couple would go on to produce their first child the following year. Almost immediately after establishing himself, Ferdinand began to lobby the Spanish House of Commerce, which had been set up by Queen Isabella expressly to fund New World expeditions. The bureaucrats were now the last blessing needed in order to obtain the necessary funds that came with state approval. The key to unlocking the mission was Magellan's assertion, through his intimate personal knowledge of classified Portuguese maps, that the Spice Islands were in fact within Spanish territory. The two nations were allowed to sail through each other's portion of the Treaty of Tordesillas, 
but only in order to reach their own land holdings. Magellan proposed heading to the New World, secretly traveling south through Portuguese Brazil. Because there was no accepted Spanish territory along that route, discovery would be tantamount to an international incident, perhaps even sparking a war. Ferdinand's nationality set off an array of debate within the House of Commerce, with some wondering if he had been purposefully sent to lure the Spaniards into a violation of international law, which could justify Portugal seizing additional land in the New World. Faced with the legitimate arguments on both sides, the bureaucracy did what bureaucracies do best. They froze amongst ongoing deliberations. A bribe was necessary to get the mission to the starting line, with Ferdinand promising away an astounding 20% of the mission's profits to one of the commerce councilmen, who assured him that he could secure a meeting with the King of Spain. This was Ferdinand's last shot at obtaining the fame that he had dreamed about since he was a young lad daydreaming in cartography class. Bergerin informs us that Magellan came well-armed for what would be the most important meeting of his life. To begin, he offered tantalizing letters from his friend Francisco Serrao, a Portuguese explorer describing the riches of the Spice Islands. The conclusion of one letter stated that, I have found here a new world richer and greater than that of Vasco da Gama. I beg you to join me here, so that you may sample for yourself the delights that surround me. Significantly, the historian writes the Sarajos' letters geographically place the Spice Islands far to the east of their true position. He located them squarely within the Spanish hemisphere, as defined in the Treaty of Tordesillas. This error might have been intentional to disguise the Spice Islands' location from outsiders. But in any event, his geographical trickery alleviated Spain's principal anxiety. As proof of his own travels, Ferdinand then presented his own personal slave to the king, whom he incorrectly claimed had originally been a resident of the Spice Islands. The explorer then proceeded to detail his long service to Portugal in order to reveal his own personal expertise. After all, the king could just take Ferdinand's information and then proceed to order a Spaniard to captain the mission. Magellan had to not only convince his new liege to underwrite the mission, but that Ferdinand, a foreigner, was absolutely essential to make the undertaking successful. But the clincher was the presentation of a pilfered Portuguese map of the globe, which depicted the route that Ferdinand planned to take. Fearful that someone might steal his map, he purposefully obscured the waterway route that he claimed would take him through South America directly to the Spice Islands. Bergerin writes that for Magellan to display a map likely purloined from Portugal was the equivalent of selling nuclear secrets at the height of the Cold War but unlike the accurate information obtained by the Rosenbergs for the Soviets, or any that was siphoned off from Einstein in order to speed up the process of making the nuclear bomb, Magellan's conception of the world he planned to explore was fatally inaccurate. 
Like most explorers of the Age of Discovery, his ideas about the size of the globe, the location of land masses, were inspired by Palatomy. Had Magellan comprehended the size of the Pacific, its current storms and reefs, it's unlikely that he would have dared to mount an expedition. But without the Pacific Ocean to inform his calculations, the estimated length of his route came to only half the actual distance. Magellan confidently predicted that it would take him at most two years to reach the Spice Islands and return to Spain with ships bulging with precious cargo. All he would have to do was find a way to get around or through South America, and he would be at the doorstep of the Indies. This was nearly the same mistake that Columbus had made over and over during his four voyages, and it was a mistake that would be corrected only at the cost of great suffering and of many lives during the voyage Magellan now proposed. To give you an idea of how off his calculations were, Columbus took 36 days to cross the Atlantic, while Magellan's navigation of the Pacific involved 98 days without sight of land. Of course, no one knew anything regarding the Pacific Ocean at the moment that Ferdinand was pitching the expedition to the king. Once he had the Spanish government on the hook, they began to hammer out the details. Assuming success, Magellan demanded a 10-year exclusive monopoly on the route and 5% of the proceeds thereafter. Such a deal is quite similar to the agreement that Western drug companies receive upon the creation of a new medication. Those companies risk billions in the development of new pharmaceuticals, after which they receive between 12 to 13 years of market exclusivity. This is the point where they can charge whatever is needed to turn a profit, plus enough extra to fund additional research projects that are currently in their pipeline. After the market exclusivity period ends, other companies are free to knock off the exact formula of the company's drug in order to market it as a generic for significantly cheaper. That's why name brand medication such as Sudafed has the exact same ingredient list with Walgreens knockoff, Walfed. The approved expedition was awarded five ships each equipped with crew, food, and artillery designed to last for the two-year journey. Bergreen claims that the ships were among the most complicated machines of their day, wonders of Renaissance technology and the product of thousands of hours of labor by skilled artisans working at their specialized trades. The flagship was named the Trinidad. It was a globalized mission as Ferdinand from Portugal sailed beneath the flags of Spain on ships which were financed by an influential banker in Germany. That last part serves to emphasize the importance of this mission to the Spanish crown, which went further into debt by backing Magellan in what appears to have been a desperate effort to locate a new revenue stream. Rue Falero was named as co-captain. The Portuguese astrologer had been with Ferdinand every step of the way and served as both his chief scientist and confidant. Still, one imagines that Magellan was unhappy with having to share the glory that came with having a co-captain attached to the expedition. During the 11th hour after the mission's preparations had become known, the Portuguese ambassador to King Charles's court 
tried to lure his countrymen back to their homeland, but Magellan steadfastly refused, noting that he would likely be thrown in jail, tried for treason, and executed if he merely set one foot in the country of his birth. His expressed doubts were countered by the Portuguese agent lecturing about the feudal tradition of the divine right of kings. The insinuation was that not only was Ferdinand disobeying his rightful king, but was proceeding against the will of God, the penalty of which was assumed to be eternal damnation. Failing to convince him with words, the Portuguese next sent out an assassin. Ironically, the hit job occurred on the night that Ferdinand was having dinner with a friendly bishop, who had recently encouraged Magellan to always carry with him a sword. Historian Frederick Ober claims that Ferdinand had not proceeded far, for he was at a corner of the great cathedral when out from the shadow of its main portal leaped a man with a drawn dagger in his hand. He aimed a blow at Magellan's back between the shoulders, but his prey in perspective was alert, for he had seen the sinister shadow projected by the faint light of a waning moon. He whirled around with great rapidity, and with his sword slashed the would-be assassin across the face. Blinded by blood, the man whined piteously, and Ferdinand had not the heart to kill him, though he was completely at his mercy. Take that to Dom Alvaro, the Portuguese ambassador, he simply said, wiping his sword and thrusting it into its sheath. And tell him this, it is a proverb of my country and he must know it. The lame goat never takes a siesta, he added grimly, limping away with this jest on his lips at his own deformity. Now I have to argue that this is Ferdinand taking literary license with his storytelling, after the fact. I know this because I was once jumped and mugged while working as a teenage pizza boy at a local joint known as Giggles Pizza. I managed to escape the event with a fantastic story, as well as a horrific hit job in the local paper that made me out to be far more pathetic than I actually was in the moment. But I can tell you that when someone jumps out at you, and you emerge from a struggle, you don't have a line as carefully crafted as the lame goat never takes a siesta ready to go. As someone sinister in a black hoodie aggressively charged towards me, all I could think of saying was, did you order the pizza? I couldn't even come up with that good of a line a couple of days after the event. I know this because while I was repeating the story for the fourth time to the police officers, one of whom had now unholstered his gun and placed it pointed towards me in the interrogation room, leaned over my shoulder demanding that I tell the truth of what happened. Did I say, they tried to take my $24, but like a crafty wombat, I never take a nap? No, I simply replied, dude, I got mugged. Ferdinand understood their efforts to stop him as part of a great game which he had chosen to be a part of. Unable to kill the lame goat, the Portuguese next tried to scuttle the voyage by applying pressure on his benefactor King Charles for the prompt return of its wayward citizen. 
they even circulated false rumors about Magellan's true desire to return home while simultaneously working overtime to destroy his name and legacy in Portugal. The result of which was the literal scrubbing of his coat of arms off of his ancestral home. They even attempted to sue Spain through the court of the Catholic Church in vain hope that the Pope would order Charles to hand Ferdinand over. Of course, it has to say something about their belief in God that they sent over an assassin before asking the church to safely return Ferdinand and the countrymen that made up his expedition's crew. In the meantime, preparations continued, but trouble began right away with Magellan writing to Charles that the crewmen weren't respecting him while they were preparing the ship. There are three reasons for such trouble. First, the Spanish crew didn't love the fact that they were sailing beneath a man who hailed from rival Portugal. Second, Magellan spoke broken Spanish, at best, and therefore had to rely upon translators, making prompt and accurate communication aboard the ship difficult. Third, no one likes a boss who micromanages tasks that you have done hundreds of times before. Ferdinand was almost arrested when he unilaterally adorned four of the ships with his personal crest of arms, which contained features known to represent Portugal. Chaos erupted on the docks when Ferdinand refused to remove them or to talk to those who were upset, as they were viewed, according to Ober, as beneath his station as a nobleman. Local officials were called in to arrest sailors while his own crew fled from the scene. One of the crew's pilots was even stabbed in the ensuing fracas. Although it wasn't instigated by the Portuguese, a spy witnessed the melee and reported it back to Portugal's King Manuel. Bergerin sums up the episode for us, writing that Magellan's fury at the incident was understandable. An exile, he enjoyed the protection of King Charles, but in reality, he was at the mercy of the mob and self-appointed busybodies. If he could not maintain order here on the quay at Seville, how would he lead men on the perilous journey across an uncharted ocean to the Spice Islands? And if there was another uprising on a distant shore, where it would be impossible for him to summon the king's help, how would matters stand? Although Charles continued to back his chosen co-captains, he appointed Juan de Cartengia to the position of Inspector General of the Fleet. Notably, the man's salary was the highest of any within the voyage. He was a representative of the king's interest and had final say over the commercial aspects of the expedition, as well as serving as the fleet's accountant. To everyone involved, it was obvious that the man's sudden appointment represented a splintering of trust in the expedition's leadership, it also granted substance to those who were already disgruntled about sailing beneath a Portuguese noble. Provisions for the first two legs of the journey cost nearly as much as the five ships that comprised the fleet. Four-fifths of the goods that were loaded on board were wine and hardtack. Sailor rations had to be one of the worst parts of the job. Hardtack is made up of coarse wheat flour cooked twice to form brittle biscuit that packs little flavor. As it rotted beneath the humid conditions of the sea, it became soft, allowing sailors to turn the previously rock-hard biscuit into a mush that tasted so bad that some starving sailors refused to eat it. 
They also packed flour to be grilled into tortillas that could be packed with pork, bacon, ham, and salted beef. The remnants of seven cows and three pigs that were slaughtered just after departure. There were also barrels of cheese, almonds, and casks of figs, as well as dried and salted fish. What was needed most, however, were fresh fruits, as citrus fruit prevented scurvy. But that knowledge wasn't yet readily known in Europe. Instead, the army of the Malaccas just had preserved raisins to go along with chickpeas, beans, rice, and garlic. As co-captain, Magellan was allowed a few luxury items, which included jelly and jam preserves. Before departing, he took the smart step of updating his will, leaving his remaining limited funds to his wife and child and putting his desire to paper that his son be raised as a loyal Spaniard and not allowed to ever seek refuge in Portugal. Final instructions arrived on May 8, 1519. The captains were ordered to record every landfall and landmark. If they ran into local peoples, they were to try and ascertain if there is anything in that land that would be to Spain's interest. While he was allowed to seize any Arabs found in the Portuguese hemisphere, he was to treat all indigenous peoples humanely, if possible. Lastly, they were ordered to ensure that the crew members had no physical contact with local women. The order was practical in nature, as the Spanish had seen prior expeditions to undiscovered lands run afoul of local sensibilities regarding sexual relations with outsiders. But the mission had one more last-minute change. Rue Falero's fragile mental state had declined to such a point that the king decided to remove him from the expedition for fear of him going mad and misusing his authority as co-captain to endanger the mission. It is always hard to diagnose someone across eras, but the astronomer was likely suffering from bipolar disorder or some form of extreme depression. Those opposed to his inclusion claimed that he was like a man deranged in his senses and that he sleeps very little and wanders around almost out of his mind. The man never regained control of his mental state, yet Ober mentions that it was said by some that his madness was feigned, on account of having discovered by casting his own horoscope that disaster and death would attend the expedition from its inception to its ending, and that he himself would not escape the almost universal fatalities. History would prove the madman right. Magellan wasn't one of those who sought his friend's removal, but was happy once the decision had been made for him. He made sure to keep all of Falero's state-of-the-art navigational instruments, including 24 top-secret navigational charts taken from their time together in Portugal. Not to his liking was that Cartengia, the king's man, replaced Falero as co-captain. The two captains had no history together, and the ability for the Spaniard and Portuguese captains to work cooperatively would only be discovered once they had ventured out into the open sea. If they lacked mutual trust and respect, which was likely to be the case, the arrangement set the stage for endless challenges to Magellan's authority. 
In other words, it laid the groundwork for mutiny on the high seas. The composition of the fleet suggested that such an outcome was far more likely than the missions successfully reaching its destination. After all, three of the Spanish pilots became aware that the more experienced Portuguese pilots were being paid considerably more for the same work. Burgreen writes that the composition of the crew engendered greater controversy, as Magellan was suspected of packing the roster with his countrymen. But the reality was that experienced Spanish seamen willing to enlist on the voyage were scarce, and so he was forced to include many foreigners. To check against foreign influence, the Spanish House of Commerce insisted that all bookkeepers had to be of Spanish descent. This lack of trust outraged Magellan so much that he threatened to abandon the expedition in the 11th hour. But he had dreamed of this moment since he had been a schoolboy. He was too far into the process to stop now. Burgreen points out that to guarantee this voyage, he had sacrificed his allegiance to his homeland, his partnership with Rue Falero, and a considerable amount of his authority as Captain General but he had kept his essential mission intact. After 12 months of painstaking preparation, the Armada de Malacca was at last ready to conquer the ocean. Join us for our next episode, which will detail Ferdinand's treacherous crossing of the Atlantic Ocean as he searches for a needed strait to pass through South America in order to once again reach the far-flung spice islands of his dreams. Unfortunately, Magellan's dream was to become a nightmare, as Ober points out that it is a matter of note that few of those directly connected with the outfitting and sailing of the fleet survived by many years its departure and return. Fatalities attended upon it and the voyage almost from its very inception, and even while they were kneeling before the altar in the church of Santa Maria de la Victoria, several of Magellan's underlings were plotting treason in their hearts. They swore an oath of allegiance to him and to the king, but within seven months some of them were in open mutiny against him, and doing their king disservice by opposing his authority. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you want to interact with the show, you can email us at resourcesbylowry at gmail.com. If you would like to financially support the show, please look in the show description for more information. As always, thank you for listening, rating the show, and spreading the word.